Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it as always. This week, Another great interview. I am interviewing author Susan Cushman. Now, Susan's written quite a few really cool books. Uh, We're going to talk a lot about her most recent book, John and Mary Margaret, that tackles a lot of really important issues, one being Alzheimer's and care for for those who who have the disease, uh, Lewy body disease, which is something that people don't know as much about, um, and caring for someone with that. And then also the huge issue of, uh, of race relations. Um, this book is told from the perspective of a white female and a black male in the 60s, um, both attending Old Miss and, and falling in love. And uh, the struggles, excuse me, the struggles that they went through um, during that time. You know, it's, it's no secret that the South during the 1960s um, definitely had its issues and you know, I, I think that whether you're in the South, the North, and, and anywhere else, uh, you know, there was issues back then, and there, there's still quite a few issues, frankly. I think that uh, the, the big thing that we, we talk about today is about, uh, you know, the need just to, to understand each other and the need to know that, you know, we, we all should be growing to, to understand each other better, regardless of what that is, whether it's understanding each other's differences um, when it comes to race, when it comes to sexual orientation, when it comes to culture, ethnicity, um, differences, you know, in life should be um, honored. They should be understood. They should be uh, realized that we don't want to just kind of put everyone in a box and say, hey, I don't see you as any different than me. It's not always helpful because, uh, you know, understanding why people do what they do and the experiences they've had is, is a really powerful thing and people want to be seen. So I think that is a, a huge thing and uh, I think that uh, Susan does a really good job of, of kind of, uh, of, of capturing that as well. Um, so we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about what inspired her to write the book. Uh, we're going to talk about you know writing in general and, and what got her to, to start writing in... Uh, her mid-60s and just continuing on with that. Now she's 70 and still going strong and, and writing quite a few books. So I'm, I'm excited just to see what uh, what she has in, in store there. But without further ado, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. You know, the one thing I want to point out is, you know, just like I said, with, with big topics like, you know, Alzheimer's, mental health, race relations, those are huge topics. And I don't, I don't say I'm an expert in, in anything, uh, certainly not those topics. I, I don't play one on TV. I don't play one in this podcast, but what I am, someone who wants to learn, um, and, uh, and that's what I, I do in, in, this, uh, in this podcast, and that's what I'll continue to do. Um, so without further ado, here is Susan Cushman. I'm here today with author Susan Cushman. How are you, Ms. Cushman? Hi, Jackson. Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of want to just get right into into things. We're going to talk a lot about uh, a relatively new book that you've got out. But before that, let's kind of talk a little bit about you and and growing up in the South. 
Um, that is, is a big part of, uh, part of your book. Um, you know, you, one of your main characters grows up in the South. I guess they both do, but let's talk a little bit about your experiences growing up there. Yeah, well, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, and I grew up in the, the 50s and the apocalyptic 60s in Mississippi. There was a lot going on there, a lot of which have influenced my new book, John and Mary Margaret, because it covers 50 years of civil rights history in Mississippi and Memphis. And um, so I grew up there and I'm living a little bit vicariously through my character, Mary Margaret, because even though we're a lot alike, um, I wish I'd had the experiences that she had when she was a teenager and met Eudora Welty because she lived in her mm. neighborhood. And I lived in Miss Welty's neighborhood in the 70s. And I saw her at the Jitney Jungle grocery store. And I just wouldn't go up and introduce myself. And I lived a few blocks away and I wouldn't go knock on her door. So Mary Margaret did it for me. There you go. Yeah. And I wonder just how much I think that's kind of a common theme in this interview maybe is how much of, of the story kind of transcends your, your actual life. That's, that's one part that you kind of live vicariously, like you said. So, you know, before we kind of talk a little bit more about the, the book, let's just kind of step back and, and talk about you as a writer. So what, what inspired you to, to be a, a writer in, in the first place? And is this, is this your full-time profession or is this a, a kind of a, a side hustle, if you will. <laughs> I love that side hustle. It is my full-time profession, late life career now. Mm. Turned 70 in March. Mm. And I have published seven books in the last five years. And I'm working on two more. So I'm being really, really busy. But starting in about junior high school, I knew I wanted to be a writer. And I wrote for our junior high um literary publication. And then in high school, I thought I wanted to be a, a journalist or a reporter. And I wrote for our high school newspaper, and it was eventually advertising and business manager, which was great experience because we all need marketing skills. Unfortunately, books do not sell themselves. Which some people think they do. And um, then I took a big hiatus. I got married very young. I was barely 19. And I raised three kids, my husband had a really busy professional career and I was a stay-at-home mom. So I put a lot of this on the shelf for really a couple of decades there. I mean, I did a little bit of freelance writing for magazines, but nothing really heavy hitting yet. So it wasn't until our youngest child left for college, and that was 20 years ago, that I decided, hey, it's my turn. Now I'm going to do this now. Of course, you get those words out of your mouth and guess what happens? I got cancer, but I'm a survivor and I'm fine. It just slowed me down a little bit. Our oldest son joined the army and left for Iraq. That slowed me down a little bit, but uh, I was undeterred. And I, I began writing and publishing essays. I love essays as a genre. And from a, a, a point of view of a new writer, it's good to get a lot of things published in journals and magazines and anthologies before you write your book because you're building a platform. You know, so that's what I did for several years, a lot of networking at book conferences and festivals, meeting other authors, getting to know them, a lot of workshopping. When you go to a workshop, your work is 
critiqued by the other students and the faculty of the workshop. For seven years in a row, I went to the Yachna Batalfa Summer Writers Workshop in Oxford, Mississippi, run by the MFA program at Ole Miss. And that was really how I cut my teeth on, on writing some nonfiction. My first book was a memoir. And, and then it's also some fiction. So it's been a long journey. And then it's like, it looks like suddenly I wrote all these books, but you have to understand I've been working on this for 20 years. And then it all began to come to fruition in the last five years. So I'm living my best life. I'm having a great time. Thinking this may be my best decade. There you go. I like it. Yeah. And I think that's important to kind of point out that because obviously there's some people out there that, you know, they go out and write a book and then it just is a smash hit and they hadn't done anything else. But most people, most writers, the book that, that becomes the smash is the one that is, you know, that they've been working for years and years and years to hone their craft. And they're finally kind of where they need to be. It's not normally an overnight success. So I think that's what discourages a lot of people is that they, uh, you know, they think, oh my gosh, this first thing that I did isn't, isn't getting it, gaining any traction. And I'm, I must, I must be no good at it, which is not really the case. And if that is the case, then it just means you need to hone things and you need to do a little bit more work just like you did with your workshops. So if we could, um, let's talk a little bit about the theme of, of this current book, um, John and Mary Margaret. I want to kind of talk to you about a, a few things within the book. Um, so just tell us a little bit, a brief synopsis of that, uh, this book. Sure. John is a black boy from Memphis and Mary Margaret is a white girl from Jackson, Mississippi. They fall in love on the Ole Miss campus, University of Mississippi in 1966, which didn't go well. They were in literature class together and both had a great love for Faulkner and literature and tried to study together at her sorority house and went out to a football game and went out to a party, but John got beat up and, and, and things didn't go well because it was not acceptable in 1966 to have a biracial relationship, you know, but I set the book, as I said, against 50 years of civil rights history. So it is a love story. It's not, and it is a fiction book. These are fictional characters, but I carefully researched the years that each thing happened in, whether there's an interaction with Eudora Welty, who's writing a story for the New Yorker about Medgar Evers' assassination and teaching Mary Margaret about that in 1963, or whether it's John, whose father um, is protesting with the sanitation worker strike in Memphis. And John wants to go up there and join the strike. But he's afraid if he gets arrested, he might lose his um, career in college. And he wants to be a lawyer and a judge. I mean, he has a really a, a, real, a real hard go. So John and Mary Margaret both have some hard choices to make. And they decide their relationship can't continue at that point in 1966. But you track forward several decades and... Um, and they find each other again. I'm not going to say hi, I mean how, because I think that would be a spoiler alert. But they do find each other again, and um, and that's that's a heartwarming part and a positive part of the book. You know, there, there's a lot of um, really truth telling about the the protests that happened on the Ole Miss campus. Sixty black students were arrested. 
Several of them didn't get their diplomas. And the character of John is actually sort of a composite of two of those actual people, Don Cole and Kenneth Mayfield. They're two of who are known as the Ole Miss Eight. And um, they were arrested and uh, Don Cole had to finish his mathematics degree at another college, came back to Ole Miss and taught there until a year ago, which mm. took a lot of courage. It's like, he, you know, I don't know that I would have gone back after the way he was treated, but he had something to say. You know, he had something to share, which took a whole lot of courage. I think these characters both had a lot of courage, um, but especially John. Uh, I, I love his character. It was a whole lot of fun to write it. No, and I'll, I'll tell you, a lot of times with, with these interviews, when I interview authors, and this is, you know, this is not a podcast where we're, you know, it's a normal like book discussion or, you know, everyone's read a book and let's sit and talk about it. So a little bit of a struggle to me on exactly the questions to ask that doesn't give things away. Cause I did read, I did read this book where generally, you know, when I talk to authors, I, I hadn't read it yet because I want to kind of be in the same spot as, as the listener is. And okay. then I, I go on and, and, and read it later on. But you, you just kind of already mentioned one thing that I wasn't sure whether we were going to talk about, but I, I want to now. Um, the thing that kind of surprised me was because I did go into it thinking that we were going to hear all about them getting together and the struggles throughout life that way. But that isn't what happened. You know, they decided that, hey, this wasn't going to work out. And, and you know, like, like you said, obviously things may have changed at a, at a later date. But I was I was surprised by that. That was kind of a uh, an interesting thing. I think it would have not necessarily been it would not have been easier for them <laughs> Um, you know, to have stayed together, but I almost feel like it would have been an easier thing to do as a as a writer, just to have done that rather than have created separate lives for them for a good while. So I thought that was really interesting. Well, I'm not sure it would have been easier for them. Um, it had no. not been until very recently that interracial marriage was even legal in certain states. It might have still been illegal in '66. I can't remember loving right. versus. I mean, loving and. Um, forget the other one name. So I don't know that it would have been easier for them. No, you know? no, no, no. I said it would not have been easier for them, but it may have been easier for you as a writer to have wrote, wrote it. It would have been way harder for them, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I loved writing uh, what they each did with their lives for the decades in between. I mean, that was that was part of just the fun imagination of writing fiction mm -hmm. and, you know, and to create their lives in Memphis, where I've lived for, for um, since 1988. And I did some research, but I also lived here. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was really fun creating their lives during that time and what that would have been like, you know, with Mary Margaret married to a white man and John married to a black woman, just did what was expected. Mm -hmm. But then something unexpected happens later, which is I'm not going to give away. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I, I guess the, the next question I want to ask, and I, it's a kind of a... I'm trying to think of a, a good way to phrase it, but in this book, I think that uh, a common theme of some of the issues that Mary Margaret had definitely with her, with her family, wasn't necessarily avert racism. It was more of a complacency. So speak a little bit about that complacency with, you know, the, with, with a lot of people in, uh, in the South during that time, uh, whether you know that was something that you experienced too as someone that that lived in the South, but it, it's kind of a, an important thing to note that I, I don't think that everyone at that time, like people think, was just overtly racist. They were just 
afraid of changing the ways that they were so used to. That's not that does not give them any excuse. That's for sure. That almost is worse to be complacent. Um, but speak to us a little bit about that that culture at that time. Yeah, well, this is this is obviously a really hot topic, and uh, whether whether someone's overtly racist or complacent or oblivious, because at various times in my life, I know I have been oblivious and complacent. And like a lot of, of white people, I've always wanted to say I'm not overtly racist. You know, I have adopted two Korean children. I have a black son-in-law. I have mixed race granddaughters. All of that points to me not being racist. But I also know that there are things in my heart from growing up in Mississippi in the 50s and 60s that are take some work to, to get over. They definitely take some work. And I'm, I feel like I've had a bit of an awakening just even in the last couple of years. You know, Mary Margaret's awakening began when she was 14 and met Eudora Welty, who began to awake, help her get awakened. And, um, and I feel like mine happened more last year in 2020 when the racial protests were going on. Um, I was so aware of it. I, had it not been COVID and no vaccine and being 70 years old, I would have wanted to go out and join the protest. And I was frustrated because I felt like I didn't have a voice. And my husband said, well, wait, you're a writer. You have a voice. You can write this. And that's when I decided to write Johnny Mary Margaret. Now, I will say that Johnny Mary Margaret started as a short story in a collection of short stories I had published in 2019 called Friends of the Library. And of that collection, um, a lot of readers contacted me and said, we want more of John and Mary Margaret. Have you ever thought about expanding it into a novel? And so I contacted Color Books, the publisher of Friends of the Library, and asked what they thought, and they said, yes, go for it. And so I wrote it uh, while isolated at home during COVID and during a lot of the height of the racial protests. So it was a perfect time to write it. And I devoted it to my granddaughters, you know, because this is a personal issue, issue to me too. Another huge thing that happened to me last summer was I read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, spelled C-A-S-T-E, Cast. Um, you know, she won the, I think it was a National Book Award for The Warmth of Other Suns, which was about the great migration of African-Americans to Chicago from the South. And so 10 years later, she writes Cast, which is about the caste system in India and racial injustice in Nazi Germany and the U.S., so just imagine that she's put America, Nazi Germany, and India's caste system together, which a lot of people would react right away to. But reading that book was a masterclass for me and greatly contributed to my ongoing awakening. Uh, and I say ongoing because I think I'm probably going to be learning about this for the rest of my life. You know, I mean, I had decades to be thinking the other way, you know, or to be oblivious or to be uneducated, you know, and now I feel like I have no excuse and I have a voice. Yeah. And I think that's the really important thing is not to just think I've got it all figured out. You know, I know I'm not, I know I'm not racist. That's obviously the, the, the dirty word. I know we, I know I'm not racist and I've got it all figured out. Well, that normally is not a good thing. If you think that you've got it all figured out, you generally don't. Something right. that somebody said to me one time that it's, just really kind of just put it in perspective was you saying that, Hey, I, uh, I don't see, I don't see any differences. I'm colorblind. Everyone's the same. It's not a good thing. Everyone is not the same. Realizing there are differences 
right. you know, honoring those differences. That's, that's truly when you're starting to get it is to realize there's differences and Hey, I've got to learn about these differences. That's a big thing. I think. Exactly. And, um, you know, I was talking with someone after a talk I'd given and, um, they said, have you received a lot of pushback because of writing this book as a white female author hmm. when you're one of your protagonists is a black male. I read this in the um, Wall Street Journal. There was an article in January. Uh, Scottish author James Campbell wrote it, and it's on cultural appropriation. And he says, writers on each side of the color line have more than just the right to cross the divide and report back. It is their duty. Imaginative life depends on cultural exchange. Literature depends on the imagination. To put it another way, culture is cultural appropriation. Any artist worth the name should be willing to take a punch for it. And uh, that was very inspirational to me. I read it after I had written the book. I expected to take some punches for it, you know, um, but just to know that. And um, I was also going to say that James Baldwin and another black, Tony Morrison, also were quoted in this in this article. So, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, I had a right. I had a right to write that. You know, another Mississippi author from my hometown of Jackson, Catherine Stockett, got a lot of pushback from writing The Help. You know, and that was 10 years ago, at least. I can't remember. Though I think she got it right. I think she got the voices right and did a great job um, writing that story. And that's cultural appropriation. You know, and, um, Blacks should write about whites. Um, Native Americans should write about Asian Americans. I mean, we need to share. We need to share our stories and share our lives. So, I mean, you, you obviously you, you, you did that. You, you had the, the courage to do that, if you will. But was it something that you did kind of take, I guess, more seriously? Was it something that you were a little bit hesitant about? Or were you just like, you know, this is, this is something that I feel passionate about. And, I, and you went full steam ahead. I really did just go full steam ahead. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that was naive. Uh, I do have a tendency toward naivety, but um, I also just felt a strong passion about doing it and about writing it. Again, I couldn't be out in the streets, and this yeah. was this was me speaking up. Another and another big theme too, um, and I, and it, you you mention it. You know, we don't we don't have to get quite deeply into how it, it intertwines, but you mention it in the very first chapter. But there's a theme in as Alzheimer's disease as well. I yes. guess what, how did that, uh, how did that, how did you decide that that was going to be part of the book and, and what, uh, what connection do you have with that? Sure. Well, my mother died from Alzheimer's in uh, 2016. Hmm. Her mother died from Alzheimer's in the eighties. And my first book was a memoir, uh, Tangles and Plaques, a mother and daughter <laughs> face Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's appears again in um, some of the short stories I've written, and I wanted it to appear here, and I wasn't sure when I started out what was going to happen with that, but um, it, it plays a major role later in the story, and I'm not going to say how, and um, so does Lewy body disease, which a lot of people are not familiar with, but it's a different type of dementia. One of my best friends died from it in her 60s just a couple of years ago, so both of these come into the story later in the story, and I'm going to let people read to, to see how, but that's why. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I, I, I did remember the other disease as well. 
I don't know if you can speak just briefly about that, because I think people are going to hear that and say, I have no idea what that is. I do know a little bit about it, and it's kind of for a goofy reason. It's that I <laughs> I love the Golden Girls, and Estelle Getty actually died of, of Lewy body disorder. So I know a little bit about it just because of that. But tell us just a little bit about exactly what that yeah. is. What I know about it is it often strikes earlier than Alzheimer's, though there is early onset Alzheimer's. Um, and in addition to um, affecting memory, it affects body movements similar to the way that Parkinson's disease does. And it moves quickly, like often from diagnosis to death can be five years. You know, whereas my mother was more like 12 years with Alzheimer's. So those are the main differences is the physical component the early, the early um, striking of it and how quickly it moves. So I read also in your, your author blurb that you, uh, at least at some point or maybe even now, led a creative writing group at a senior living facility. Tell us just a little bit about that experience. Oh, this is a great experience. And I'm kind of uh, serendipitously, I'm going there tomorrow. It's Kirby mm. Pines Senior Living uh, Facility here in Memphis. And I'm actually going to speak to their book baggers book club, which has over 50 people in it. Mm. But the creative writing group, there were 20 people between the ages of about 73 and 93. Mm. And I met with them every month for a while in person. And then due to COVID, we had to go to Zoom. And uh, boy, have they lived some lives. And mm. a lot of them are writing memoirs. And um, I love, I mean, they've lived all over the world, have fabulous stories to tell, and some of them are excellent writers. But I felt like I, I wanted to do that to give back in two ways. One was because my mother spent the last eight years of her life in a nursing home and three years before that um, in an assisted living home and got excellent care in both places. And I was so thankful for that because I was in Memphis and she was in Jackson, Mississippi, 200 miles away. And I was burning the pavement on the highway, but I wasn't there 24 seven, you know, so that was part of why I wanted to do it. And then um, the other reason is because one thing that's helped me so much in my writing is participating in writing workshops. And I think seven summers in a row, I went to the Yachtnabatafa Summer Writers Workshop in Oxford, Mississippi, led by Ole Miss MFA faculty and uh, cut my teeth on that, you know, chapters of various books of mine were critiqued in those workshops. And so it was such a great experience for me that I turned it around and led a, a creative nonfiction writing workshop in Memphis. I co-directed two writing conferences in Oxford uh, because I feel like these are really important ways for people to um, get their work critiqued, hear some great craft talks, make some great friends and network. Yeah, now that kind of really spoke to me when I read that because actually it was, I don't know, maybe about 25 episodes ago, but I interviewed an, an author. It was his very first book. He was in his mid seventies and he actually interviewed, I think it was a, a dozen to 20 different baby boomers in that generation, just to talk about the crazy things and the awesome things that they're doing after retirement. So okay. I, I just, I just thought, Hey, I'm sure your experience with this and just the stories they have to tell are just, uh, just amazing. I think it probably just takes somebody there just like you to, uh, to kind of hone the craft of writing, but I'm sure the stories aren't, uh, there's not a lack of stories in that room for sure. No, no there's not the 93 year old woman. This was one of my favorite things. She had never used a computer. Mm. So when she joined the writing group, she said, huh, 
I need to learn how to do this. She bought a computer, taught herself how to use Microsoft Word. She wrote and published something like an 80 or 90 page memoir. Mm. Like they're supposed to turn in 15 or 20 pages each month. She would turn in 50. And I would say, no, we can't critique 50 pages from you every month. She says, I don't care. I got to write this story before I die. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no, that was just such a joy to see that happening. No, that is that is really cool. So those who are, are maybe wanting to, to write, whether they're 15 or 95, what kind of uh, advice do you have to, to, uh, to a new writer? Well, there's a lot of paths you can take. One path I did not take was to get my MFA degree in creative writing. A great thing about doing that, if, if that works in your, in your journey, is you read so much and, you, and, you, and your work is critiqued, is workshopped along the way. So that's, a, that's one path to take. Of course, another path is to do what I did and live decades of life and these life experiences uh, give you a lot to write about, which is someone in their 20s and 30s doesn't have these life experiences. Doesn't mean they can't be successful. They certainly are, but they better either have a great story to tell, some great talent, and a hard work ethic in your 20s and 30s, you know, to do that. And uh, another great thing uh, that I encourage people to do that I did is join a writing work, uh, a creative writing critique group. I couldn't think of the words. And um, I was in two different ones. Each one lasted several years where we would meet every month and critique each other's work. And that was very beneficial to me. And, and then attend workshops and conferences. And uh, not only to get your work critiqued, but to network and meet people. Like at conferences, they're often pitch fests where you can pitch your work to publishers and editors and agents and meet people and begin to build a platform. Right. I think so many people I, I'm, and obviously I'm not a writer, but this is just my assumption. There's, there's a lot of people that are just so afraid of being critiqued and people picking yeah. apart what they're doing yeah. and, and those kind of things. So as a published writer, someone who has been successful, I'm sure in these critique workshops, no one had anything negative to say about your writing, correct? Oh, yeah, they do. I was in I've been in tears before at a workshop. Yeah, yeah, you just have to, you know, take off a layer, a protective layer and, and put it out there. It's kind of like you're putting your baby out there and be willing. And now I will say uh, a critique workshop that's to run well teaches its members to do this, to first say something positive about the work and then offer your criticism and offer it in a positive way and not in a way to be saying, oh, I thought that was terrible what you did about blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. No, that's not helpful <laughs> at all. But instead you would, you would, it's how you phrase it. It was, hey, have you considered writing it in third person instead of first because maybe blah, blah, blah would help. Well, that's great, you know, but it needs to be positive uh, and helpful and not judgmental and not mean. <laughs> Yeah. You know, so and sometimes you have to find a group that works for you where you have chemistry with the personalities. Yeah. So, you know, with, with some books, it's it's hard. This question's harder and some's easier. I feel like this is a relatively easy one, but maybe not. Um, what do you hope when people read this? What do you hope that they they gain from it and uh, and take away from the book? OK, I'm going to quote Eudora Welty because this sums up what I hope. And this is one of the quotes in front of one of the chapters in the book. Great fiction shows us not how to conduct our behavior, but how to feel. 
Eventually, it may show us how to face our feelings and face our actions and to have new inklings about what they mean. A good novel of any year can initiate us into our own new experience. And even writing this book did that for me. So my hope is that reading it will do that, will do that for my readers. And then I have one other hope. So flip from Eudora Welty to William Faulkner, who said, never be afraid to raise your voice for honesty and truth and, and compassion against injustice and lying and greed. If people all over the world would do this, it could change the earth. Mm. So they say it better than I could. And they are my role models, two of my role models. I also quote James Baldwin and Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. You know, some of my other heroes I quote throughout the book. Yeah, no, I like that. And what was, I mean, what was the experience like writing the book? I mean, I've talked to some very accomplished authors in the past that say, you know, they're, they're on the journey too. They're, they're having all these emotions. A lot of times, you know, the, the people I've talked to have written, I guess, a lot, um, maybe not as deep of topics. So what was the experience like kind of living through your childhood and living through some of these, um, you know, racial issues and, and discrepancies? So what was that like? You know, it's interesting. Um, it was not as emotional as writing my first novel. My first novel, Cherry Bomb, was about a little girl that escaped from a religious cult where she was molested. And she mm. throws up graffiti and she gets a scholarship to the Southern College of Art and Design. And she's mentored by a famous artist and she learns to paint icons of an Orthodox monastery. Okay. I just named about five things that were true of my life. And so when I wrote that fictional novel, instead of writing a memoir about those things, it was extremely emotional for me and it took six years. Mm. So contrast that with this book. I wrote it in three months. Now you have to keep in mind that I had already written the short story uh, two years, a year earlier, two years earlier. So I had the skeleton. It's almost like having a synopsis. I knew what I was going to say and yeah, it mattered to me emotionally, but I felt a little less, um, overwhelmed emotionally as I wrote it. I felt a little more, I felt driven uh, and I had a purpose and I wrote it in about three months. Mm. And partly is because I wanted to get it out there because mm. things were happening and thankfully Color Publishing agreed mm. and, and got it out there in about nine months after I turned it into them, which was that's incredible. No, <laughs> that's, that's really awesome for sure. So you, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned a couple of your other books. I want to give you the chance. Obviously, we're we're here to talk about John and Mary Margaret, but tell us just briefly about some of those other books. If someone's picking this up and like, you know, I don't want to just have one book from, from Susan Cushman. I want to hear some of the other ones too. Sure. Well, I've written four and I've edited three. And the four I've written are the memoir, Tangles and Black, Some Mother and Daughter Face Alzheimer's. And the way I wrote that book was over a period of about eight years, as I was visiting my mother in the nursing home in Jackson and driving back and forth and back and forth and dealing with, I had moved her out of her home, sold her house, taken care of her finances, her legal, her everything as, as she lost herself through Alzheimer's. So it was an incredible journey, but I would come home and write blog posts about each of it. So I took 60 blog posts and turned them into a book. Again, this was suggested by people who read my blog. My blog, Pen and Palette, is, I've been active in that since 2012, I think. So that was like 
the hardest book to live, but the easiest book to write because mm -hmm. the blog posts were done. You know, so that came out the same year as Cherry Bomb, the novel, which I've just told you about. And in between those coming out, I think I have ADD. I always have to have a project going on or I get bored. <laughs> I decided I wanted to put together an anthology because I had essays published in anthologies. And I thought, I'm going to try putting one together. And I invited 20 women to contribute essays to an anthology titled A Second Blooming, Becoming the Women We Are Meant to Be. And these were all published authors. The preface was by Anne Lamott. And it's about women telling their stories of second chances in life, mm. second marriages, a second chance after surviving um, incarceration or cancer or getting sober or a divorce. And so that was published by Mercer University Press in between the memoir and the novel, all in the year 2017. Mm. Well, the anthology was so much fun and so much easier than writing a book that I decided to do it again. So in 2018, my second anthology was published by University Press of Mississippi, and it's called Southern Writers on Writing. And this time I invited 13 women and 13 men from nine states in the South to write anything about writing. And some of them wrote about the craft of writing and some wrote about place, some wrote about race. So that was my fourth book. And then from there, I moved forward into short stories, The Friends of the Library, because my publisher for Cherry Bomb asked me to go visit those 10 small towns in Mississippi and visit the libraries, talking to them about Cherry Bomb. And that's how the short story collection uh, came about. And so that was uh, in, like, I'm losing track. That was in 2019. Yeah. And then meanwhile, I'm part of a huge international group called the Pulpwood Queens Book Clubs. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kathy Murphy started this group 20 years ago. And I have been a speaker. They have an annual conference every January in Jefferson, Texas. And I've been a speaker four or five years in a row there. And she wanted to celebrate our 20-year anniversary January of 2020, and she asked me to put together an anthology. So there are 67 essays by authors and book club members, and it's called The Pulpwood Queens Celebrate 20 Years. That came out in December of 2019. So that all was leading up to John and Mary Margaret. I don't think I've left anything out. So that's seven books in five years. I'm right now working on another anthology that Mercer University Press is going to publish. I'm not going to say anything more about it yet. And I've started a new novel. So Damn. I'm having a great time. And all my books are available at anybody's independent bookseller, but also online. So wherever you want to, you can get them. Yeah, it sounds like you've just been kicking back and not doing much the last few years. Huh? <laughs> yeah, that's, And, and I, I guess the one question I want to ask about that is, you, you know, you talked about deciding to, to become a, a writer later in life. So what did your, what's your family think of, of you just really grabbing this bull by the horns and, and taking off? It wasn't just like, you know, I'm going to write one book. You've really, really dived headfirst into it. So what are they, what are they saying about all this? They're so supportive. My husband is, um, he's a physician and he's in academic medicine and, and a lot of research, hypertension, diabetes. He has had and is still having at age 72, a really busy career. Mm. And so he understands that the years that I stayed home were pretty much because he was 
busy and gone so much. So it was a bit of a sacrifice. On the other hand, I absolutely loved being a soccer mom, a stay-at-home mom. And I just, it was like, that was my career at that time in my life. That's what I chose to be doing. And now I'm choosing this and my kids are really cheering me on. I think they loved that I was the soccer mom, but they're not. My daughter is a professional, you know, um, full-time professional in IT. And um, but so she's choosing a different path. She's not a stay at home mom, but she's doing what works for her. And uh, they're just they're all proud of me and cheering me on all three kids and my husband. So I'm so and, and my husband, of course, has supported me financially as I pursue this, because you don't make a big living writing books unless you're a New York Times bestseller. Mm-hmm. People are shocked at how little you make off the sale of books. You, know, you have to sell in the millions. And so I'm not in it for the money. I want to sell a lot of books so that a lot of people will read and I can connect with them. Absolutely. No, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, for sure. So you've already kind of mentioned where people can pick up the book, any of their, their friendly local bookstores uh, online as well, if that's what they prefer. Um, but how can people connect with you further? Yeah, my website is easy enough, www.susancushman.com. And within that website, um, my blog is Pen and Palette. And I, I post about once a week. Absolutely. Well, I've enjoyed speaking with you. It's been an absolute pleasure for sure. I do recommend anyone go out and check out this book and, and all the other ones that you've, you've written and, and all the ones you're going to write. Because I, <laughs> I think that it, it doesn't sound like there's an end inside. I didn't hear that. I'm wrapping up this this whole writing thing. So yeah, it's been it's been a, an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jackson. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for the opportunity. So that was Susan Cushman. Really cool interview. Really enjoyed speaking with her. Just hearing about her passion for writing, hearing about the reason that she was so inspired to to write John and Mary Margaret, about some of her other books. Just a, a really fascinating, cool person that. Uh, has had a lot of really cool experiences in life, and uh, and she's she's decided to to write those down and and let us all uh, learn from those experiences. So I appreciate her being here. I appreciate you being here. As I said in the beginning, I, I my goal always is just to learn and to grow and to to understand more complex issues. Uh, I don't think. Uh, I uh, necessarily am, am ever going to completely understand every complex issue, but I, I strive to, to learn. As you heard a few times in this interview, uh, when we're talking about one complex issue, and that's Alzheimer's, I, uh, I don't always even say it correctly. I kind of say Alzheimer's uh, with that T in there. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to learn about all these complex issues, even on how to say it correctly. So uh, I, I appreciate you you being here. I appreciate Susan's time. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you learned just a, a little bit uh, about all of these issues and, and maybe uh, gave you something to think about. But go check out the book. I'll put a, a link in the show notes to, to check the book out and to check uh, to her website out. Go check us out, of course. Subscribe, comment, all those great things. JacksonF.com, Not in a Huff podcast on instagram all that great stuff appreciate you being here until next week take it away chris this has been not in a huff with jackson huff thank you for listening be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think or hey 
maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.